we are back in Matthew chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 16. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 23. The Bible says in Matthew 10, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning as we look in your word, we see words that are difficult that none of us want to hear, um, that deal with pain and suffering and things that we don't really like to think about and don't want to go through. Father, I just pray that this morning that you would just speak to us through these words, that you would just help us to have open hearts and minds to what you would have us to learn about ourselves and about our walk with you this morning. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. So, as I was thinking about this passage, um, on my way into church this morning, I happened to hear Creedence Clearwater Revival came through on my iTunes, uh, on my iTunes playlist, and uh, and... And the song, um, uh, I See a Bad Moon Rising. And, uh, and all I could think about was, I know it's very spiritual to listen to on my way to church, but all I could think about was, was how appropriate it was for this, for this passage. Um, that, that all I can see when I read this is just, oh, it is just get ready because the bad is coming. And, and, and that was kind of the message of it. Well, then, and I thought that was what I was going to start with, but then we, I sat here this morning and we started singing these songs. And I don't know if you noticed, but so this is kind of negative today that we're going to look at in this passage, but yet every one of those songs kind of answered that, here's the bad stuff coming, but what's the answer to that? It's all about trusting in Jesus and seeing Christ work even in those circumstances. And so that's, I'm kind of giving you the end and the middle and the beginning in that, but that's really what this passage is talking about today. It's talking about persecution. It's talking about the fact that if we are believers in Jesus Christ, the norm for our life is persecution. And the more that, you know, if you have read a newspaper in the last year, two years, if you've turned on Facebook in the last five seconds, um, you know, you have seen something about persecution that has gone on in the world and maybe even in our own country. And today, right now, in places all around the world, there are people putting their lives on the line. There are people trying to leave places like Syria and Iraq and other places because to be a Christian means to face death. And that's what Jesus Christ is, is talking about here in this passage. He, he's still continuing. He, he's continuing with his discourse to his disciples as he sends them out on this mission that, as Gunnar pointed out last week, is specifically to the area of Galilee. And so he started off with that, and he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep 
in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. He starts off here with a clear reference to what has just happened. He's just in the first 15 verses sent the, told the disciples, I'm going to send you out into this area of Galilee. Um, of course, building on how he had ended uh, the earlier passage, that, that the fields were white already to harvest, that they were ready to be picked, and God was sending them out to tell people the good news that the kingdom of God had come. So this passage in Matthew 10, 16 starts and ends with a clear reference to that context. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. But what we're going to see here is that this has so much more. If you read this passage and you think, okay, well, this just applies to the disciples. This is what Jesus is telling them for the first century for this particular mission. But the fact is, as we read this, what we're going to see is that I think it has a lot of bearing. In fact, mostly he's speaking to those of us who come after, or he's speaking to what the disciples are going to deal with in the future, not what they deal with on this particular mission. It's fascinating what Jesus does here as he starts this. He starts by telling them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There's, there's four animals that he's going to deal with here. The common view of sheep, as we've already looked at before a couple of weeks ago, is that they were stupid. They're dim-witted creatures. They're dumb. And so what he does is he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of these wolves. And what do we know about wolves? They're always trying to attack the sheep. They're trying to kill the sheep. He's like, this is the way I'm sending you out in the the world. Don't look at yourselves as being the ones who are in charge. Don't look at yourself as as being the ones that are out there and everything's going to go your way. As a matter of fact, everyone you meet, it could be the one trying to hurt you, trying to kill you. And so so his answer to that is, I'm sending you out as sheep. The people you're coming against are wolves, but then he tells them to be like two other animals. He says, so be as shrewd as a serpent. Now, this word shrewd there, we would not normally think of snakes as being shrewd, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, they, they, many languages and cultures at that time had this view of a snake kind of representing wisdom. Um, it probably goes back to all the way to Genesis where the same word is used in the Greek Septuagint to describe Satan when it says he was of all the, the, of all the beasts in the field the, that the serpent was the most cunning is the word. But it's the same word that's used here. And so he says, be as shrewd as a serpent. Now, for most of us, though, including myself, and even at that time, while they looked at the serpent as being cunning and the snake as being something representing kind of shrewdness and, and wisdom, they also had the same fear that we have of snakes. When you see a snake, your first response is probably, what a smart animal. Let me try to learn from this thing. No, your first response is probably, well, if you're me, it's I'm going to find something to kill it with because I don't even want to let it go somewhere else because I just don't want to see it. I don't care. You can tell me about all the little colors, and this one's safe, and this one's... I don't care. It doesn't belong anywhere near me because it's probably going to eat me in some way. Um, so that's the way most of us feel about snakes, and that was the same type of actually the, the way they were viewed even at that culture in that time. And so what does he do? He, he, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be as shrewd as a serpent, but then he tempers that and says... But don't be like the snake that everybody's scared of. Be as innocent as a dove. And the dove has this picture and has always had this connotation of peace, of love, of something that is innocent and cannot hurt anyone. 
So he says, while you go out into the world and you're sharing the kingdom of God and you're telling people that the kingdom of God has come and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to have this relationship with God, he's saying you need to use wisdom in how you deal with people, but you also need to have an attitude like that of the dove that no one can hold anything against you, that you're supposed to be a person of peace and love in the midst of a world that is trying to kill you. Our cunning is not to be directed at hurting our enemies, but instead, as we're going to see here, I believe, is he kind of unpacks this in the next several verses, our cunning and our wisdom is not to be directed at hurting our enemies. Too many times, that's kind of, we think, oh, I'm supposed to be as shrewd as a serpent, so I'm going to be looking out for how I can, that person's out to get me anyway, so I'm going to figure out how I can get one up on him. But instead, I think what he's saying is, our cunning and our wisdom is not supposed to be directed at hurting people, but to our own self-preservation. And ultimately, that self-preservation is for the furtherance of the gospel, not because I need to preserve myself because my life is in God's hands. So he comes to verse 17, and I, and I wouldn't totally say this, but I kind of feel like verses 17 through uh, verse 19 are sort of explaining... The, the be as cunning as a serpent part. I, I don't feel like it's totally there, but, but I do think we see some stuff in there that's talking about. And he says, But beware of men, for they will hand, your, hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So he starts off by saying, remember he said, be cunning as a snake? Well, well, he starts off here, and that's why I say I think there's some connection here, because he starts off by saying, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you. Um, the immediate context here is the fact that people will reject their message. Now, how would you like being given a mission? Remember, he's told the disciples, your job is to go out into Galilee to spread the message of the kingdom, to tell people that the Messiah is come. And yet now he's immediately turning around and saying, but guess what? People are going to reject your message. What a great way to motivate people. Wouldn't you love to go to work and have your boss tell you, here's your mission. Here's your, here's your, your job that I'm assigning you, but you're going to fail. You're going to be a complete failure. And I'm probably not going to like it when you submit it to me. Just to, just to give you a heads up. But that's kind of what he did here. He says, and so he, he, this, this goes back to, remember, he's kind of already set the stage for this because in verses 14 and 15, he says, whoever does not receive you nor heed, you, heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So he's kind of already led them down this road and said, there's going to be some people reject you and you just leave and let God deal with them. It's not your job to convince anyone. It's God's job to save. It's our job to spread the word. And so what is he talking about here? Historically, each Jewish town would have a local council of 23 members who, as one of their allowable judicial responsibilities to criminals, was they could administer floggings. And they were usually actually done, uh, the, te the, the, the temple leaders, the, the synagogue leaders, would be kind of the, the ruling party there. And, and they were the ones who would dole out these, these floggings. Uh, we have, in, in Deuteronomy 25, under the law, they were only allowed to do 39. Um, it, we find Paul 
in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, eleven twenty-four, one of the things he lists of of punishments that he's gone through for the sake of the gospel is he says five times received I thirty-nine stri- uh, forty stripes save one from the Jews. Um, this was a painful, painful, painful way to get punished, and so that was one of the things they were allowed to do. The interesting fact is though. And the reason that I say it seems like the middle part of this text doesn't really have a bearing to the disciples, per se, for this mission is because we don't have any record of anything like this happening to the disciples before Jesus Christ went to the cross. Now, after that, we have all the disciples in the book of Acts. Ultimately, all of them will give their life for Christ. Ultimately, all of them will be martyred for their faith, except for, as Gunnar pointed out last week, John. And John would even suffer for his faith. And so it seems like Jesus is kind of going into a, 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 something that doesn't really apply specifically to his disciples. But he's telling them, as you take the word out, this will happen to you. And so... But this was, they could face this on this mission because they were going to be in Israel and they were going through these towns in Galilee. Now, the, uh, then we come into a different reference, though. And he says, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sakes. Now, this obviously cannot just apply to this mission because the fact is they were only supposed to stay in Galilee. The Galilee does not have a king. Galilee did not have a governor. The governor was over the, the, the nation of Israel. Kind of a, 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 they had kind of a king there, but he was appointed by the, by the Roman government. Um, you had the empire, the Roman empire. So this is obviously out of context for what the disciples are going to face. But ultimately, we know that in the book of Acts, ultimately, when you come down to the end of it, Paul... As the book of Acts kind of starts around Peter's journeys, his missionary journeys, and then it kind of ends around Paul's missionary journeys. And as the book of Acts ends, Paul's entire desire is to get to Rome so he can stand before the emperor of Rome itself and give him the gospel in person. And so we know that ultimately these men who Jesus is talking to here would ultimately give their lives for the sake of Christ they would be hauled before tons of governors. They would be hauled in front of lots of leaders and, and, and answer for why they, they kept doing something that ultimately would either be badly looked down on by the Jews or completely against the law under various times in the Roman government. And so this carries it beyond the context of Galilee. Now, obviously, this is talking about persecution. But I think as we deal with this, we have to do one thing first, and I think it's done well here, is we have to define what real persecution is. All through this text, you can see it. You can see it in verse 18 here. It says, and you will be even brought before governors and kings for my sake. You can see it further down when he says, they will hand you over, it will be given you in that hour, it is the Father who speaks in you. All through this text, it's made very clear that persecution is not just because you're a criminal and you did something wrong, so you get hauled in front of the government. You can't raise your hand then and say, oh, I'm being persecuted. Persecution has to deal with directly your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that the only reason 
that the government official, the local official, the, the, fan, the person you know has something against you is not because of how you're acting, how bad your reactions are to them or how angry you are, but only because it's your relationship with Jesus Christ and your desire to stand on the truth of God's word that puts you at odds with what they are teaching or what they believe. And so we define persecution as Jesus being the determining factor of real persecution. And so whenever you're trying to look and say, because there are some difficult scenarios, and trying to figure out at what point do I draw the line and have to say, I cannot do this because of my faith, and then you face repercussions for that, if it's because of Jesus Christ and the stand you've taken for him, that's the defining factor of persecution. So does it happen in our country? On the extent that it is around the world, absolutely not. Could it be happening in very individual situations? Yes, it could by this definition. And I think more and more as we go on, we're going to see even for us who know Jesus Christ in the United States, that we're going to be more and more asked to compromise our beliefs based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when that time comes, is Jesus Christ going to be important enough to you to say, this, this, I cannot go past this line, and it may look different for every person, but I cannot go past this line, and I'm willing to put my job, my family, my life, my health on the line for the sake of my relationship with Christ. But it has to be about that. Not about, I like to fight with people, not about, I have a different political opinion than you, not about anything, but my relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the real definition of persecution. Now, also, within this, we have to understand what he's saying about the prevalence of persecution. He says, Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogue. There's not an if here. The interesting thing is that when you look at the book of Acts, Christianity is persecuted from the, from the very beginning. Starting in Jerusalem, the persecution gets so bad that they move away from Jerusalem and it forces them out into the rest of the world. But every town they go to, Paul is constantly being followed by people trying to destroy his ministry, trying to kill him, trying to turn Christians away from their faith because they do not like what he says about Jesus being the Messiah and being the only way to God. And when we look through history, I'm not going to give you a long history lesson here, but the fact of the matter is we live in a very unique period of a couple hundred years that has never existed anywhere else outside of this little microcosm that we call the United States of America. In, the, in church history, the early church faced persecution from the Jews. Then they faced persecution from the Romans as they headed beyond the borders of Israel. Later, after Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity... With the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, the church grew, and it did enjoy relative peace for hundreds of years. But what happened was then it became intertwined with the government. Well, any time you intertwine whatever belief with a government ruling body, you 
asked for problems. And as they drifted from the moorings of Scripture and began to rely more on government, those who claimed the name of Christ began to persecute others who also claimed the name of Christ. And in some cases, those ones who claimed the name of Christ who were being persecuted, if you look through history, they actually had a much more biblical understanding of Christianity than those who were persecuting them. This was seen in the persecution of early reformers like John Wycliffe in the mid-1300s, who believed that you should be able to read the Bible in your own language. And for that, the Roman Catholic Church tried to kill him. The, uh, he, he spoke against the papacy and doctrines of it. John Huss came along after him. He was influenced by Wycliffe, and he preached, in, uh, he, he preached that um, the papacy was wrong. He preached that people should be able to read the scriptures in their own language, and he ultimately paid the ultimate price and was put to death for his views. The persecution only became stronger when the Protestant Reformation gained full strength under Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others. And then... Those same reformers, unfortunately in many cases, who did do good things and try to call the church back to a a, a stand on the scriptures, those same reformers turned around and persecuted other believers simply because they didn't agree with them. And so so you had groups of, of Protestants who came here to the United States to try to escape persecution in their own countries by either the Catholic Church or other Protestants. And ultimately, in our own country, if you think we've always had perfect religious freedom, that's never been the case uh, up until we actually formed a constitution. Roger Williams had to start Rhode Island simply because he wanted to worship at what he felt was a biblical model of Scripture as, and started the first Baptist church in America. But he had to do it and form his own state because they were being persecuted in Massachusetts, who wouldn't let them actually form a Baptist church there. And so you have, you have persecution happening simply because people believe the Bible a certain way and want to practice their faith in a certain way. And ultimately, even coming down to in 1801, when now we have a constitution, and and yes, we have religious freedom written into the constitution, but yet you have the Danbury Baptists who write a letter to Thomas Jefferson, who had just become president, and said they were concerned because the Connecticut the, the, the state of Connecticut was very closely tied with the, um, with the congregational church in the state of Connecticut, and therefore they felt like their rights as Baptists were being trampled on to actually practice their faith. And they wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson and said, how do you see this? Basically, do you support the religious freedom in the Constitution, and does it apply to states? And there we get the famous letter back from Thomas Jefferson, back to the Danbury Baptist, who said there's a strong wall of separation between church and state, it's been misinterpreted or whatever since then, but basically he was saying the state should not have the power to destroy whatever faith it is and, and also should not be able to put up a state church. And so all through our history, from like 1800 till now, we have a period where, yes, we do have religious freedom, and yes, we can believe whatever we want, and yes, we can practice our faith however we want, but this has not been the norm for any part of human history. And it took thousands of years of people shedding their blood and moving from one place to the next so we could have a relatively stable period of time in our history where we could have unparalleled opportunity to share the gospel and see Christ move. And the Lord has used missionaries and others from Europe and from the United States where, we, where religious freedom has existed to take the gospel to unchurched areas of our world. 
But I believe when I read this, that that's not the norm that God has ever intended for his people. It'd be nice to say God intends us to get saved, follow him with our lives, and live in, this, in, in a place that's safe and free from persecution, and we don't face, um, we, and not to face any negative things because we follow Christ. But instead, Jesus says, when they hand you over, they will hand you over. You will face this persecution. The norm is what the disciples were going to face. He goes on in verse 19 and he says, When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. You see, the norm is persecution. And I believe that what he's saying here is defined real persecution as it's all about Jesus Christ. And then he's saying it's going to be totally normal when you get persecuted. That is what you can expect as a follower of Christ. But then he says, how do you respond? And this is what really defines us as believers. So when we do face those persecutions, when we do face whatever it is we face because we are willing to put our faith in Christ and stand by that decision by that decision and by that relationship. He then says there's a proper way to respond to that persecution. These negative encounters end up being opportunities for a furthering rather than a stopping of the ministry. Witness will take place at a higher level of government if you're just willing to follow Christ whenever you face these times. How does that mean? Uh, it's interesting that he uses the same word in, in six, uh, in, uh, in, go back to the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't worry about your life and what you will do and what you will take thought of because the Lord knows in, in Matthew 6, 25, what you have need of before you've even asked it. It's, he uses the same words here. He says, do not worry about how or what you are to say. Now, I don't know about you, but, but anytime I have to go deal with, with courts, I don't care whether it's a tra- I haven't had to go to a traffic ticket in, I don't know, 15 years. Maybe it's 15 years ago. I don't know, 15, maybe 20. It's been a long time. But um, yeah, I, I still remember, you go up in front, and in South Carolina, I've never had to do it here, but in South Carolina, you're literally only standing in front of a magistrate. I mean, really, they're not even a real judge. They're, like, appointed by, the, by somebody else. And so you're in front of the magistrate, and, and, but even then I'm, I, I remember just going in there. Yes, sir. No, sir. Like, please just, just, just let me out of this ticket, please. Just you're begging them. You know, you, you feel this nervousness because they represent the law and you have broken the law and you have gone against what that law says. And so that police officer gave you that ticket. And so you've got to answer for what you did. And for me, because I grew up that way, you know, there's a respect there. And so you walk in and you, you just got this natural nervousness. Well, can you imagine if your life is on the line and you're getting pulled in because you were given the gospel out? Can you imagine how hard it would be to sit there? Okay, I've got to think of something great to say. Let me sound like Billy Graham in front of this guy right now. Um, it's interesting that he says, don't worry at that point. Because the natural instinct within all of this is going to be, oh yeah, I'm worried. I'm shaking my shoes. I don't, I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And yet... He promises that he'll give us those words to say. It's interesting in 1 Peter 3, 15, it says this. 
He says in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, how does that happen? It almost seems like he's saying two different things there, because in this case, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. But in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. But notice how it starts, though. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It, it doesn't, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be, uh, if you know who he is, Josh McDowell, and, and have written lots of books on the defense of the faith. Uh, you don't have to be um, Lee Strobel, whose book we have in the back, and, have to, and be able to, off the top of your head, quote all these great things defending Christianity. The only requirement is that you have Jesus Christ in your life. That your faith is in Jesus Christ, what he did for you on the cross, and that his Holy Spirit is working through you, and that the Holy Spirit is the one that is speaking. Faith in God, that he will give us the words, and reliance on his Holy Spirit. Now, do we have any pictures of this in Scripture? I started thinking about that, and like, well, maybe we could come up with some good illustrations, but honestly, we can see it right in the book of Acts. We see in... uh, the first one I thought of, there's actually a couple of passages that I thought of here, but Acts 17, 19 through 23. And, and I think what we see here is, is proof of this happening in Paul's life. So in Acts 17, Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. And he comes up to a place known as Mars Hill. And it was a place where basically you could just get up there and, and discuss and debate and and. Any view in the world, if you believe there were aliens living in North Dakota, you could come and just defend your views as to why aliens were living in North Dakota. And if you could gather a big enough crowd, you could sit there and talk. Well, he comes along, and and he's got people around him and stuff. And in verse 19, we find him, and he says this. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, I would say that this is an example of Paul relying on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit supernaturally giving him these words. Because when I read this story, I get a picture of Paul. They, they're kind of, he's kind of being dragged by this crowd to say, hey, we, we know you're talk, teaching something that is different than what we've ever heard taught before. And we want to know what it is. And, and I'm sure Paul has presented the gospel hundreds and hundreds of times. But to be able to pull, of, I mean, to be able to pull from something in this city where he's never been before, and he happens to see it probably out of the corner of his eye and like, hey, there's a statue. And they have God statues everywhere in Athens at this time. And he looks over and there's a statue to an unknown God. And he's like, you know what? I saw that statue there. And he pulls him in with this illustration. And he's like, let me tell you about that God that you don't know, because I do know him. And he goes into this awesome illustration and this awesome sermon where many, many people accept Christ all because he relies on the Holy Spirit 
to pull them in and make it interesting as he's delivering this sermon. And I thought about that at first, and I do think that's a great illustration, but there's an even better one. There's a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Stephen, we find out in the book of Acts, was one of the first deacons. Now, deacons were not chosen to go be leaders in the church. They were not chosen to go make decisions or go be missionaries or go even preach on Sundays. The deacons were literally chosen to take care of the widows that were in the church because of the divide that had happened between the Greek widows and the the Jewish widows, and they needed to make sure they were all taken care of and to kind of relieve the elders, the apostles, the pastors of responsibility so they could focus on the word of God. So there's this man named Stephen. He's probably just an average man. And then we find him in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and we find this about him. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly introduced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put him forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gazes on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And Stephen commences at that point to just share his faith with them. But the verse that really stuck out to me as I read this passage, because ultimately what's going to happen is Stephen is, 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 has these false charges brought against him. He's dragged out into the city and he's stoned to death. He's the first Christian martyr. And there's a young man named Paul who's standing there watching him get martyred, who's actually probably leading the martyrdom of Stephen, who ultimately becomes one of the greatest apostles ever in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. But the thing that I want you to see here is in verse 10. What was it that caused Stephen to have this power? What was it? Was it because he was such a great Christian? Because he was this ultimate example of holiness and spirituality? It was verse 10. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen didn't do these great things. He wasn't able to go and face the fact that people were going to take rocks and throw them at him and ultimately stone him to death because he was a good person or because he, he was so eloquent with his words. He was able to face it because when he spoke, he spoke through the Holy Spirit because he, he didn't rely on himself. Because when he went out in town and he said, Lord, I, I mean, he, he, was, he was just a deacon. He may have been looking at himself like, I, Lord, I, I'm, I'm just a deacon here. I, I serve people. I'm willing to go make food for people. I'm willing to go take care of people, willing to help fix their carriages so they can get around and get to the grocery store. But, but I don't know how to tell people about Jesus, but it says that because of the Spirit speaking through him, people saw who he was. And because of that, he was taken before the leadership, and ultimately put to death. But the whole time, his reliance was on the Holy Spirit, who was able to speak through him. And because of that, I can imagine that Paul, as he stood there thinking, I'm doing God's work by putting this man to death. 
Can you imagine how Paul felt the rest of his life as he stood there and watched Stephen be stoned to death and later on as he surrendered his life to Christ and said it was because of watching that person give their life and he probably couldn't get it out of his head. Why would somebody be willing to give their life for this man who is against everything that we've believed and stood for all of our lives? It was only through the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit's coming is one of the main differences that demonstrates the coming of Christ's kingdom and the transition of focus from Israel to the church. It's interesting in Matthew, Matthew doesn't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. If you compare him to Luke, Luke mentions the Holy Spirit a whole lot more. But when Matthew mentions the Spirit, he ties it to this new kingdom that Christ is bringing in. And one of the ways he does that here is that he... He brings it in and says, hey, you're following Christ now. When the religious leaders pull you in, the difference that you have is that it's not a dead religion. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit that will speak through you and give you my words to give to those who are persecuting you. And then he he comes almost to the end here because the next thing he has to talk about is how do you respond to the persecution? You rely on Jesus Christ. You rely on the Holy Spirit. It's not about you having all the answers. But then where do you expect persecution to come from? Because you think, you you would like to think, I I know I would, you know, when when we were in Iraq, um, you know, when you're in combat, and I, I wasn't in like real combat. I was there after Iraq had already calmed down. But, when you're, when you're in combat, we try to make a safe place for people to come back to. We put a, 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 a Ford operating base. Um, we, we still have one in Iraq right now, Al-Assad, and there's actually thousands of still Americans there. But So we have these bases, and the whole reason you have those is so you can send people out on patrol, and you can do your missions and have them in a really dangerous scenario for, for maybe weeks, maybe a couple of months, but then they need a rest period. They need to be able to get out of that so we can pull, we can come back into this safe zone and you can, get, you can get some, you know, we call it three hots and a cot. You can get a good night's sleep. You can get some good food, not an MRE. And, um, and, and you can just have this time period to rest and re- relax. And you would think, okay, God, you're sending me out there to be persecuted. All right, I, I can deal with that, but I need my safe zone. I, there, you would think, you would be promised this group of people, somebody that you could rely on and trust. Instead, look where Jesus goes with this. Verse 21, Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. If there is one close relationship on earth, it should be your family. It should be, those should be the people that you should be able to turn to. And no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done in your life, even if they disagree with you, you should be able to find a safe haven. I mean, if I, I don't, anytime I've, been, I've done, you know, I, and I don't try to counsel anybody on how to raise kids. I've only got a two-year-old. But, you know, I, I try to tell people, you know, even if your kids have done things you disagree with, you, you try to provide that accepting house for them. You don't have to agree with their whole life in order to provide that love for them even at that level. But yet Jesus says, even your family is going to turn against you. Christ is warning that when you are willing to follow the truth, 
When you are willing to put Jesus Christ first, that many times it's going to turn away the closest people in your life. It's one thing to face persecution from people you don't know, from people who are leaders in the government, from leaders in your work or whatever. That's almost easy compared to you walk in the door and they say, get out of my house, I never want to see you again, I disown you, and by the way, if you ever show your face, I'm going to call the police on you personally. That's a lot different scenario. And if you're going to follow Christ in that situation, your faith has got to be grounded on the absolute certainty that whatever you're giving up, you're getting something much better in return. The fact is you are. You're getting a family that will never leave you and never forsake you because you have a father in heaven who says, that he knows even the hairs on your head, that he sees every tear that you cry, that he knows everything about you from beginning to end, and he promises you a home in heaven with him for all of eternity. And the hope of Christ, the hope of this relationship with God, is greater than any family tie that we can have here on earth. But that is really hard to see when you're in the middle of a situation like that. The interesting thing is that he's going to come back to this as Gunnar preaches here in a couple of weeks on, and continues in chapter 10. We're going to see it come back up. But the allusion here is to Micah 7, 6. There's actually a turning against family prophesied. It says, for son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Once again, I believe... Matthew is clearly pointing out that when Christ comes, he fulfills prophecy, and that prophecy is not just feel-good prophecies, that many times that prophecy is going to be ones in the Old Testament that we don't really like to read about. That ultimately, Christ, yes, he's a unifier. He brings to draw all men to himself, but ultimately, men will resist his call on their life. And because of that, there will be disunity through our relationship and through our faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so we can expect it to be from even our own families. Um, we see that more in other cultures, maybe so than our own. Um, there's plenty of people in the U.S. that have unsaved uh, husbands, wives, uh, sons, daughters, and they still have good re- relationships with them. But there are many cultures in this world where if you become a believer... There is no relationship anymore. You're told you can't be one of us because you've given up. You've quit being part of who we are. If you're, if you're Muslim and you live in, in Syria and you accept Jesus Christ, your own family will probably try to put you to death because they feel it's better than you being, than you being a believer. So we, we don't really understand that as much. It's awesome, but it's interesting here. He says in verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean everyone you come in contact with will hate you. Otherwise, why in the world would you ever witness? Because nobody's going to believe. They're all going to hate you. What he's saying here is I believe that he's saying that it's not hated by all without exception, because otherwise there'd be no converts, but it's hated by all without distinction. That no matter what your race is, or your creed is, or your color, or where you come from, 
wherever you go, you're going to find people who hate you because you name the name of Jesus Christ. You're, 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 you're always on the out. I love the book of 1 Peter because the book of 1 Peter is constantly all about how we are aliens and strangers. There's an old song that I used to sing as a kid, and uh, you know now I'd probably find it a bit hokey. But I liked it as a kid. And it was, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasure's all laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And no matter where we go in this world, if we know Jesus Christ, then the people that are closest to us are never going to be as close to us as truly what that brother or sister believer is who looks different than us, lives in a different country than us, speaks a different language than us, but they have the same Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. They are our brother and sister, closer to us than our blood family. That's what Jesus Christ does. Their commitment to Christ in the day persecution demonstrates their salvation. He ends with this. He says, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Does this mean that if you back down that you're not a Christian? I don't necessarily think that. But I do believe that how we respond to persecution shows our level of commitment and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. There's no way to tell how you or I would respond with a gun put to our head and told, renounce Christ or die. Or worse yet, with it put to your husband or wife's head or your son or daughter's head and said, renounce Christ or they die. Fortunately, most of us will never, ever have to consider those scenarios. But there's a lot more subtle ways where we can be asked to put our faith on the line. How are we, are you going to compromise in this area of your walk with Christ? Are you, going, are you willing to do this um, that just slightly obscures the gospel? Are how are we going to respond when that day comes? And the Bible says the one who has endured to the end, they will be saved. Our faith will be demonstrated by what we say and how we say it when we're faced with persecution in our lives. And remember, it's not us that says it. We don't have to sit here and think, okay, Lord, please make me strong enough to endure it if somebody comes up and puts a gun to my head. Our focus shouldn't be on that. Our focus should be on, let me get to know God so well. Let me get to know Christ so well. Let me fall in love with Jesus to the point where nothing else is worth living for but Jesus Christ. And if I have to give up my life or my health or my family, Jesus Christ is all that matters in this world. Because that's what, that's, that's when we truly understand what Hebrews is talking about. In the great faith chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, as he's going through and he's naming these men and he's saying people who went through this and people who went through this, and he comes to verse 37 and he says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And then it says this about all those people who were persecuted. He said, men of whom the world was not worthy. There's been lots of examples in history of people who are willing to put their lives on the line. And God tells us, 
The world wasn't worthy for that type of a person. But Jesus Christ was. And he was and, and that was who they were living for. He ends with this verse, verse twenty three. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the city of Israel until the Son of Man comes back. Comes. Um, this is a difficult verse. Believe it or not, this is one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament to actually understand what he's saying here. Uh, the first thing we see is that obviously, I, I believe that the first obvious thing he's saying is that when you get persecuted, you don't have to be a glutton for punishment. I mean, I know that's kind of dumbing it down, but there's nothing that says, you know, when Peter had the, there was a, there was a, a, a point where I think it was Peter when he was in the book of Acts, and I didn't write this down, that's why I'm blanking on it, but um, where the chains fell off him, the prison gates opened up, and the guard was getting ready to kill himself because he thought his prisoners had escaped. And literally, Peter stood up and said, whoa, whoa, don't kill yourself. We're still here. We didn't leave. I don't believe that that's necessarily the way you have to react to every form of persecution. There were other times where the prison gates opened wide, and what did they do? They walked, over, they walked away from the prison, and they walked up, and they went out to the, a house where all the Christians were praying for them. And the Christians shut the door back in their face because they were like, no, he's still in prison. How is he sitting out here on our porch? So, but I do believe it's, it's very clear here that he's saying, hey, you're going to flee to another city. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. He, uh, it goes back to his instructions to his disciples in the previous verses. Verse 14 says, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. So basically, you don't have to stick around where you're not wanted. Um, he goes in, in Matthew 7, 6, it says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So it goes back to Christ's themes in the Sermon on the Mount of, of, of if somebody wants to reject the gospel, that's on them. It's not your fault that somebody rejects the gospel. Our mission is simply to give it to them, and if they don't accept it, move on to the next person. So... It's not cowardice, but smart to escape to more hospitable areas. Although that doesn't mean that those areas that are inhospitable to the gospel don't need it. But maybe there's a better way to get the gospel there than you putting your life on the line. Maybe God has another plan for it. To be perfectly honest, you or I cannot walk into Saudi Arabia and share the gospel. It's never going to happen. You will find yourself in jail or expelled from the country very, very quickly. If the gospel is going to be shared in Saudi Arabia, most likely it's going to be someone who speaks Arabic in Saudi in the Saudi dialect and looks like them and is from Saudi Arabia and has family and friends there and, and, and they do it in a covert area that doesn't raise any suspicions because they are Saudi. So God doesn't God has his own way of reaching people. He Everything does not depend on you and I. So it's not wrong to move on whenever we're facing persecution in one area. Um, the, uh, so that's what it means on the, on the first part of it. But then he has this last phrase, and it says, You will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now this is, uh, this is the section that has... You can, there's commentaries, and they'll spend the last... Three pages, I think, of one of the commentaries was literally on this one phrase. 
And it's because it's such a difficult passage to kind of, because depending on how you read the New Testament and the Old Testament and, and how you see in times, then it can be very different things. I, this is just my opinion, but I think there's a couple of different interpretations that I think fit with this passage and make sense with it. The first one is that this could be kind of a close fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Now, what do I mean by that? He says that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, the problem is here, so he, if this, the close fulfillment is this could mean Jesus is going to at some time see his disciples again, and he's saying, you're not going to go through all these cities in Israel until I come back, until you see me again. The problem is he wasn't even sending them to all the cities of Israel. He was sending them to Galilee. So the, his words don't make a lot of sense given what he has already commissioned them to do. But I do think in one sense he's saying, hey, you're, you're not going to finish this mission before you see me again. And so that's, that, I think, makes sense within the context. But then you still have that phrase, you will not finish going through all the city of Israel until you see me again. The other thing, and I do think it, it, it applies this way, is that um, is that the far is Christ's return and his second coming. That at some point, Christ is basically, he's already said, he's already talked about persecution that obviously the disciples didn't face until he had already left the earth. And I think what he's saying is, you're going to face this persecution, but at some time I'm coming back. And whoever is on earth at that point in time who knows me as Savior and Lord who is under persecution, I'm going to rescue them and I'm going to deliver them because I am coming back. And he has constantly told his disciples that. And so there's definitely kind of a, 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 a end times uh, context here that Christ is coming back. And, but then you have the phrase in Israel. And the problem is they went out way past Israel. We know about the, Jesus Christ here because mo, mo, there are few in here who might have Jewish roots, but most of us are not Jewish at all. We know about Jesus Christ because they went to places like Asia. They went to places like Europe. They spread the gospel there and our ancestors, or maybe we're first generation and we've lived here in the U.S. and someone told us about Jesus. There's another option that I think also fits that, that I kind of feel is the way it's talking. And that is that Jesus has in mind the Son of Man coming in judgment on Israel culminating in the destruction of the temple and the sack of Jerusalem. Because ultimately what we see is that um, he's just finished talking about the gospel of grace replacing the religion of the Pharisees. When he talks about you can't put new wine into old wineskins, he says there's a, there's, if you remember that sermon, he talks about the fact that the gospel of grace does not have anything to do with legalistic religion that was being pushed by the Pharisees. And so he says, and so what he's saying is in continuing this theme, remembers Matthew's whole theme is he's trying to get his own Jewish brothers and sisters to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so his whole point is to try to warn them that, hey, you've got to get, you've got to accept Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is saying at some point, this is all going to be destroyed. And ultimately it would be in AD 70. And, and I kind of feel like maybe that's what he's talking about there too. Um, it, who knows? There, there's literally like eight or nine different ways you can look at this verse. But here's what I do know, and this, this is how I'll finish. No matter what the intended interpretation of that last phrase, 
it has something to do with the fact that Christ is coming back. I can tell you that. And it is obvious that between whether that was a time in the past that he was talking about or whether it's a time in the future, that he has said that during the time period when Jesus is not here, that you and I, that those of us who follow Jesus Christ, who call ourselves his people, will face persecution. We will. And how we respond to that persecution will demonstrate our commitment to him and to the gospel that changes our life and will change the lives of the people that we come in contact with. But for us who know Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that it's not our own power, it's not our own strength. The Lord, when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were given the Holy Spirit. And it is totally through his power And through his response, through us, as he changes our life, that we can influence even those who would persecute us to see the love of God that only he can bring through his death on the cross. If you know Jesus Christ, how will you respond when the persecution comes? Will you trust the Holy Spirit? And when that day comes, don't let that be the first time you've called on him. Don't let that be the first time you've reached out to him for help. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this, for your word. I thank you that you gave us your Holy Spirit. That, Father, you work through each one of us to share the gospel. Lord, you you could have just sent angels down to do it. You could have found another way to do it, but Father, you have entrusted the gospel to sinners who failed you at every, at every level, yet you saved us, you redeemed us, and ultimately you even say you're going to put the words in our mouth so that we can stand up in the day of persecution. Father, we pray for those around the world who even right now are enduring this persecution. Father, we ask that you would just give them the words, the strength, the testimony that even when they're put to death, that even when they face loss of life, health, or family, that those who are persecuting them would know that Jesus Christ is the reason they do it. And Father, may your word go forth unhindered. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Christ's name. Amen.